0: I'm Joel Parker.
1: And I'm Beth Bartel. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, March 20th, 2012.
0: Coming up, have you ever had the feeling that things are moving faster and faster these days? Well, we talk with Nobel Prize winner Adam
1: Reese about the accelerating universe. And closer to home, we find out that pine bark beetles are also accelerating, in this case, breeding twice as fast as before.
0: We begin with a look at some of the recent news
1: in science. Petroleum-based products are all around us, not only as petroleum in our gas tanks, but it is also in our paint, packaging, clothing, toiletries, and medicine, just to list a few. But petroleum-based products are made from a non-renewable resource and have a lifetime longer than most anything else on this planet, which can cause a problem. A research group in Finland is working to replace the petroleum in these products with biodegradable compounds made by microbes. Not only would these new materials, chemicals, and fuels be made from a renewable resource, but they also can be made from waste. The research group is part of the Academy of Finland, specifically its center of excellence in white biotechnology and green chemistry research, with white biotechnology meaning industrial biotechnology. The team is using microbial cells to produce new, useful compounds from sugars found in plant biomass. The group does this by modifying microbial metabolism using gene technology. Applications for the resulting compounds may be as diverse as creating new plastics, textiles, packaging, medicine, and fuel. The new biotechnology may not be ready yet, but by the time polyester comes back for a third lifetime on the fashion scene, we may be able to respond to compliments with, thanks, a microbe made it.
0: Many people celebrated recently when Campbell's, the iconic soup maker, announced it's phasing out the controversial chemical in its cans. The company's decision follows similar moves by Nalgene and other companies whose products have contained the chemical bisphenol A, or BPA. BPA is one of many chemicals used in thousands of common products, including cosmetics, pesticides, and flame retardants. Scientists suspect they can mimic human hormones, including estrogen. Despite rising public concern about hormone-mimicking chemicals, the Food and Drug Administration has maintained that BPA is safe at low levels. But the agency is currently reviewing the scientific evidence and will announce its findings soon. For years, research has focused on What levels or doses may be safe and what levels may be toxic, even carcinogenic? A new study, which reviews hundreds of research reports, concludes that, in fact, there are no safe doses for chemicals that alter hormones in our bodies. So even a very small amount in a soup can, for instance, could be harmful. The lead author of the study is Laura Vandenberg, a developmental biologist at Tufts University. She and her team cite studies linking BPA to hyperactivity, obesity, and depression in kids, and to heart disease and diabetes in adults. Vandenberg said that endocrine disruptors aren't like other chemicals. Instead, they function in the body at infinitesimally small levels. For instance, she said, a large amount of dioxin would kill you, but a very small dose, like what you'd be exposed to from eating contaminated foods, increases the woman's risk of reproductive abnormalities. The study was published in the journal Endocrine Reviews.
1: On a similar topic, in the science calendar next Monday, March 26th, the Colorado Cafe Sci-2 will be presenting a talk and discussion titled, Ozone, the Good, Bad, and the Not So Ugly. The talk will be given by David Fahey, research physicist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Earth System Research Laboratory in Boulder, Colorado. Hormones, pharmaceuticals, and other endocrine and neuroactive chemicals of natural and anthropogenic origin increasingly impact surface water, groundwater, and drinking water. The Cafe Sci presentation will investigate how these chemicals can alter endocrine mediation of perception, cognition, behavior, and other traits in humans and wildlife, and discuss ideas for solving these environmental problems through water infrastructure investment. The presentation starts at 6.30 p.m. at Brooklyn's restaurant at 901 Aurora Parkway in Denver, near the Pepsi Center.
0: You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Another science event this week will be a public talk by Dr. Adam Reese who shared the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics for uncovering evidence that the expansion of the universe is accelerating. Dr. Reese will give the 2012 George Gamow Memorial Lecture at Mackey Auditorium on the University of Colorado Boulder campus this Thursday March 22nd at 7:30 p.m. As a prelude to that talk we have Dr. Rees here on the phone today to discuss the work that led to his Nobel Prize, which was shared with scientists Brian Schmidt and Saul Perlmutter. Dr. Reese is a professor of physics and astronomy at the Johns Hopkins University and is a scientist at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. He earned a bachelor's degree in physics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a doctorate in astrophysics from Harvard University and he won a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant in 2008. as a research fellow at the University of California Berkeley from 1996 to 1999, Dr. Reese and his colleagues conducted the research that was to win him a share of the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics. The citation for the prize stated it was quote "For the discovery." of the accelerating expansion of the universe through observations of distant supernovae. Adam Reese will help us translate what that means and the implications about the ultimate fate of the universe. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank
2: you for having me.
0: So, uh, the expansion of the universe, maybe we should start with that. Can you give us a background on what exactly is the expansion of the universe?
2: Sure. Um... We have known for a long time, actually, uh, back going back to the 1920s, to the astronomer uh, Edwin Hubble, that the universe is expanding, that it acts as though it received a big kick, which we call the Big Bang, and after that, the separation between galaxies has been growing, and we see that all around us and very far away.
0: So everything's moving away from everything else. That's correct. There's no center. You can't point somewhere and say, that's where it started.
2: Right. Well, every place in space feels as though it's the center. It's sort of the narcissistic view of cosmology. But uh, (laughs) as we actually understand the expansion, that is just a perspective effect. You could think of it like um, if you lived on the surface of an expanding balloon, uh, wherever you were on the surface of the balloon, it would look like everywhere else is moving away from you. But if you relocated yourself anywhere else on the surface of that balloon, you would see that the phenomenon is the same.
0: So you say this was discovered almost 100 years ago, starting with Edwin Hubble, who the Hubble Space Telescope is named after. How did he actually discover this expansion of the universe?
2: Right. Well, um, the way you measure the expansion of the universe is you look around you at objects around you, mostly distant galaxies, and you try to measure how far away they are, and you try to measure how fast they are moving, with respect to us. Um, it's a phenomenon very similar to what's known as the Doppler effect when uh, a train uh, is, let's say, moving towards you when you hear a change in pitch of the sound, and then as it as it passes you and moves away from you, you hear another change in pitch of the sound. And likewise, we see the same phenomenon with light if objects in the universe are moving very fast. In reality, it's not Uh, so much the motion of those objects as the expansion of space itself, which causes the effect. And so we look around us with telescopes, and we try to measure how far away galaxies are and how fast it looks like they're moving away from us. And the relationship between those two uh, allows us to measure how fast the whole universe is expanding.
0: That Doppler shift in light is what's called the red shift of the expansion.
2: That's correct. So if galaxies appeared to be moving towards us, then that would compact the wavelengths of light or shift them to the blue, a blue shift. But if they're moving away from us, then it would elongate or move to longer wavelengths, the light, which is towards the red end of the spectrum. So we call that the red shift. And what we see all around us are all galaxies essentially have a red shift, indicating they're all rushing away from us.
0: Everyone's trying to get away from us.
2: That's right. Something Something's wrong with us. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, so that expansion's been known for a while. What was your next step? What was your new idea?
2: Right. Well, uh, once the universe is expanding, your next question becomes, well, what happens next? Does it just keep expanding forever? Does it stop? And the expectation, at least by the 1990s, was that the expansion should be slowing down, that all the gravity from all the objects in the universe should be tugging on each other, and that should tend to slow down the expansion of the universe, just as if um, you tossed your keys into the air, the attractive gravity from the Earth would pull back down on the keys, and eventually the keys might stop going up and actually might come back down. So, So,
0: So the idea is possibly everything would eventually reach its limit, gravity would keep pulling, and you'd have everything come back to a big crunch.
2: That's right. It seemed to really depend on sort of how fast the keys were tossed into the air and, in that case, how much the Earth weighs. Because if you threw your keys hard enough um, and the Earth was light enough, then you would say the keys had escape velocity, just like a rocket fired up um, could actually leave the gravitational pull of the Earth. Or if the keys are not traveling very fast or the Earth is very heavy, then the keys would be pulled back down. So the question that was set up for us in the 1990s was, Will the universe expand forever? That is, uh, are the keys going to escape, or will the universe uh, recollapse in a big crunch? Will the keys fall back down? And so the question became one of simply measuring how the expansion rate of the universe was changing, whether the trajectory looked like it was decelerating enough to actually pull the universe back together. And so we set out in the mid to late 1990s to look for a class of exploding stars called supernovae, which are really, uh, well, they're stars that explode at the end of their life, but we use them as tracers. Uh, they, are, they light up, and we can see them far away, and so we use them as tools to measure the past expansion rate of the universe.
0: The, these supernovae can be very, very bright, brighter sometimes than the galaxy they're in.
2: That's right. They, at their peak brightness, they can be about 5 billion times the luminosity of our sun, and because uh, galaxies sort of vary from anywhere from one billion stars to uh, maybe 50 or 100 billion stars, sometimes when a supernova explodes, it's actually as bright as the entire galaxy of stars in which it lives.
0: That's amazingly bright from just one star in a galaxy. It is. <laughs> and, and so that, I guess, is what makes them useful to see at large distances.
2: That's right. Um, there's a couple properties that uh, make them useful. They are They're a little bit like naturally occurring lighthouses, in the same sense that when you look out at a lighthouse, you know it's very luminous, and so at night, you can judge how far away the rocky shore is. Um, So we've learned to calibrate these supernovae like lighthouses, but like a lighthouse, they're so luminous that you could see them far away. So they make uh, outstanding tools for measuring distances in the universe, and then uh, maybe a little bit different than a lighthouse, but we understand what the color of that light should be. So the... Fact that the universe is expanding and causing this redshift, we actually see the shift in color uh, of the light, and so we're able to measure these two aspects that we need to measure the expansion of the universe.
0: So you can measure the expansion of the universe, although the acceleration or the deceleration of that expansion is... it seems like that's one step more difficult.
2: Well, that's correct. And so we, in that case, use a trick that astronomers have known for a long time, which is when we look out at the universe, Uh, It takes the light so long to reach us that essentially all the information we get is old information. It's old news. There's a delay built into the universe because of the long time it takes light to travel. And so we use this to our advantage by looking very far out. We are looking back in time. And so there is a record always available to us of the not only current expansion rate of the universe, but also the past expansion rate if we can see these distant objects. And so we can actually, uh, at any time, measure how the expansion rate of the universe is speeding up or slowing down.
0: And, and you found that it was, in fact, speeding
3: well, up.
2: Well, so you're, you're, you're stealing the punchline. Oh. So <laughs> in the, <laughs> in the mid-1990s, we were poised to see that the universe was slowing down. And uh, when we made the measurements, and this was right around 1997, 1998, we were shocked to see that not only was it not slowing down a little bit, It was not slowing down at all. It was actually speeding up. And so this whole story I've been telling you about tossing your keys in the air and expecting them to fall back down, it was as if you tossed your keys in the air and they went up faster and faster. It's quite a throw. That's right, quite a (laughs) throw. But, you know, you would actually measure it and see they're getting faster all the time, almost as if they had a rocket attached to them. So in this case, we could not attribute it to the ordinary attractive gravity of the Earth or, or matter throughout the universe, but rather another kind of material in the universe, very exotic, but not so exotic that Einstein himself hadn't first thought about something like this when he developed his theory of gravity uh, in 1916, that there could be a kind of repulsive gravity, a repulsive gravity that we attribute to empty space and the energy in empty space, and we call this dark energy.
0: Dark energy is something that's expected to have kind of the opposite effect of
2: gravity. That's right. It has Uh, we believe repulsive gravity, um, but it it has some other strange properties, unlike matter that we see in the universe, which mostly clumps together. The dark energy is smooth and uniform, quite uniform, and lives everywhere in space. It lives in the room that you're in. It lives between the galaxies. We believe that, in fact, it's impossible to create space without creating some of this dark energy.
0: So you not only discovered the acceleration of the universe, but would this be strong evidence for the existence of dark energy, then?
2: Yes. This was considered the first strong evidence for the existence of dark energy, which, by the way, actually makes up most of the universe. About We believe about 70% of the mass energy budget of the universe is in the form of this dark energy. So, we were shocked to see not only the universe accelerating, but evidence for the existence of most of the universe.
0: So, what's the future for the universe?
2: Yes. Well, that's a great question. Um, At face value, it would seem that the keys are going up and the uh, universe is accelerating. And so we are not going to end in the big crunch that the universe will expand forever, faster and faster. Although the flying ointment is we don't have a good understanding of the physics of this dark energy. We don't understand what its origin is. As well as we would like, as well as we need to really make firm predictions about the future of the universe. There are some theories which have this dark energy actually uh, morphing or changing over time into even possibly an attractive force, which means we cannot rule out that the universe would recollapse. Although the sort of smart money is still on Einstein, and
0: uh, that's always a good uh, bet, probably.
2: Yes, that's right, um, and uh, his his ideas about what this stuff is. If that is correct, then the universe would expand forever, and uh, objects would become further and further apart, so far apart that at some point we wouldn't even be able to see many of the distant objects in the universe.
0: Everything would not be able to see anything else. I mean, you'd be very alone out there. That's correct. Did you have any idea when you started this project that it might lead to a Nobel Prize?
2: No, not at all. <laughs> not in my, Not in my craziest... Thoughts about it. Uh, it just seemed like a really interesting measurement to make, um, but I didn't know how interesting it would be.
0: When did those crazy thoughts finally leak in?
2: I think it was uh, when I got a phone call uh, this past October, about <laughs> five thirty in the morning.
0: Yeah, you always hear that it's a wake-up phone call, don't you? Yes. I appreciate you taking the time to tell us about what to expect. Perhaps not in the near term, but the distant term, and just explaining what it is behind the work that goes into a Nobel Prize. Uh, Congratulations very much on the work that you did and and the prize, and uh, I hope that you continue to find good expansion going on out
2: there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much for being on the show, Adam.
2: All right, take care.
0: That was Dr. Adam Reese who received the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics. This Thursday, Dr. Reese will be giving a talk titled, Supernova and the Discovery of the Accelerating Universe. The talk will be held at 7.30 p.m. in Mackey Auditorium on the CU Boulder campus and is intended for a general audience. The talk is free and open to the public.
1: You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU science show. I'm Beth Bartel. This strange music is the sound of Beatles but when it comes to pine bark beetles, this is no music to people in Colorado. These tree-killing beetles used to breed once a year. Warming annual temperatures now allow them to breed twice, resulting in 60 times more offspring. Hungry tree-eating offspring. CU biologists Jeff Mitten and Scott Ferenberg have just published their findings that doubled up breeding season explains why the recent pine bark beetle epidemic has killed so many trees. And it's not over yet. Up next, How on earth Shelly Schlender talks with the scientists about which trees are the most vulnerable to pine bark beetles. We'll start with Scott Ferenberg explaining how trees defend themselves.
3: When you cut down a pine tree and you get pine pitch on your hands, you're experiencing its defensive response to injury. Uh, beetles work much slower than your chainsaw, so when they drill a hole, they get a face full of resin. So the pitch tubes that people see on the tree, the resin blobs, were the response of the tree trying to defend itself. And every once in a while you'll find a tree where the resin blobs look a little different. Usually they're red or pinkish, and that means the beetle got in and was chewing up sawdust and and excreting sawdust. When it's white or candle-waxy looking, it usually means the tree is winning. And so
2: if you've seen that when you're walking around, you're seeing trees that are well-defended. Most of the epidemics that we've seen have been kicked off by droughts, and a drought uh, stresses all of the trees, and in particular then, they don't have enough resin pressure to defend themselves. So a a particular tree under the best of conditions might be able to pitch out several hundred beetles, but under a drought condition, that very same tree might be killed by a dozen beetles. So uh, resistance and susceptibility varies with recent uh, rainfall, but then it also varies uh, as well among uh, individuals within a stand. And uh, Scott has discovered there's a very large and very important pattern uh, with elevation here in the front range. When you go above the historical range limit
3: of the mountain pine mule, you really only have to cross about 9,000 feet in elevation. So when you see beetles occurring above that elevation now, That is not historically normal. So they have gone upslope by thousands of feet in in recent years. But one of the reasons why bark beetles were not at high elevations historically was that it was too cold from the perspective year-round of the beetle. Not just winter temperatures, but just total year-round temperatures were too cold for them to get their numbers up big enough to to survive in those places. But now that beetles do go there, they're finding trees that don't have a history of defending themselves from bark beetles.
1: That means that these trees that are high up have never worried about beetles, and a beetle bores into them, and they go, whoa, whoa, what? And they don't know how to do the pitching out with resin.
3: In a sense, what's really, what's happening there is that the tree has less total resin stored and less resin delivery potential. So that when you pull out tree cores or you look at a cross-section, you can characterize how much resin a tree can deliver by how many resin ducts you can count. When we look at them as we go up slope and elevation, we find that high elevation trees have less potential to deliver resin when beetles
1: attack. Thanks to Shelley for that report. For more information, check out The American Naturalist, which is publishing the research of CU scientists Jeff Mitten and Scott Ferenberg. Or check out our extended version of this interview at howonearthradio.org.
0: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Shelley Schlender. This week's show was produced by Joel Parker and engineered by Jim Pullen. Additional contributions by Susan Moran.
1: Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music this week from Laurie Spiegel and David Dunn. Visit our website
0: on howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes.
1: Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bartel. And I'm Joel Parker.